Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and I'm joined today by Ludwig Siegler, our technology editor, and Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. Hey, Ludwig. Hello. Jason. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. On this episode, we're going to discuss a controversial European ruling on cross-border data flows. And we're going to look at the Nobel Prizes. They've been awarded in the sciences. We've got medical physiology, physics, and chemistry. Ludwig, let's start with you. There was a ruling this week from the EU Court of Justice on data transfer agreements between Europe and the U.S. What's happening? It's called the Safe Harbor Pact, and and the Safe Harbor Pact is the treaty between the U.S. and and the EU. And what it tried to do is bridge the differences between the U.S. and the EU when it comes to privacy. So data protection in the U.S. is more a consumer protection issue so you can negotiate, you can make trade-offs, you make exceptions for intelligence services. But in the EU, it's a fundamental human right, so it it is non-negotiable. And so that's a big difference. So that's why data protection laws in Europe are much stricter. And so that Safe Harbor Pact, which was signed 15 years ago, tried to bridge those differences by basically saying, yes, if you're an American company, you can send personal data over to and store it and process it in the U.S. on your service there if uh, you sign up to certain rules outlined in the Safe Harbor Agreement. So this week, the court overturned it. Is that right? That is correct. So what happened is when the uh, data agreement or the Safe Harbor Agreement was signed 15 years ago, there were not many data flows across the Atlantic. Privacy wasn't really politically that important in Europe. That has changed, of course, a lot. You have now about, I think, 5,000 companies signed up to Safe Harbor. I mean, the trickle of data across the Atlantic has turned into a tsunami. And politically, of course, this has become much more important because of the revelations by Snowden, the, the former NSA contractor. So the political pressure has grown to renegotiate that safe harbor agreement, which is basically based on self-certification by American companies. So there's no enforcement, all of that. Then uh, an Austrian campaigner filed a suit against the Irish data protection uh, authority saying basically Facebook doesn't protect my data, can't protect my data, hence the safe harbor agreement is invalid. The case wound its way up the courts and ended up uh, at the uh, European Court of uh, Justice. And that court now decided, indeed, the safe harbor agreement is uh, invalid. You have to look for other legal avenues to allow for data transfers to the U.S. So what will the practical implication of the ruling be for companies like Google and Facebook? So safe harbor isn't, as I just said, it's not the only legal avenue which allows you, makes it possible for you to transfer data to the U.S., if, uh, European personal data. There are model contracts, basically templates of contracts developed by the EU you can sign or both parties can sign. There's other rules. So what companies now have to do since safe harbor, the pact is no longer valid, is kind of look for other another legal basis for the data transfer. The other possibility is, of course, that they shift to European data centers and basically n- not send the data over to the U.S., 
wouldn't that be the logical way they would go forward? You can have a technological solution. You just don't transfer it to the U.S. That is true. But I mean, there are certain costs associated with that. I mean, if you have to build new data centers, and depending how far this goes, it could also kind of lead to the further balkanization of the Internet. So if the EU insists on its privacy laws, companies have to localize data, build local data centers. Other companies may be encouraged to do the same. Uh, they've already done that post-Snowden. So it's, it's kind of a further step towards a more balkanized internet. Can I jump in here? It, isn't the natural outcome of all of this that everybody will eventually have to – it will be easier for everyone to act according to the strictest rules that prevail somewhere such that – well, first of all, it would be a good time to invest in data centers in the EU and so on. But if, with so many companies that span so many countries and so many users using services that in turn span so many countries, won't the average just end up being the strictest? Uh, that's one school of thinking. I mean, then again, I mean, the European Union cannot expect kind of to impose its strict privacy laws on the entire world. You can argue the pros and cons of that approach. I think it would be not very efficient and not kind of politically, not politically correct, but I mean, not very democratic to say, okay, we Europeans think that privacy is so important. So you, whatever China or, or America or Mexico, you have to kind of comply with that strict standards. They, these countries may have other ideas when it comes to privacy. So I think the better solution is to have some kind of an international cooperation between countries or bilaterally or even multilaterally to common rules how to deal with privacy. So in other words, what you're suggesting is safe harbor too. What I'm suggesting is safe harbor too, and that's happening. I mean, there's negotiations between the EU and the US uh, ongoing for now, I think, almost two years. A problem is there. I mean, they have agreed kind of on the commercial aspects to make it easier for, for example, EU consumers to go to the US and get their complaints resolved. But they have hit a snag, and the snag is it's the access uh, to European data by U.S. authorities, meaning the NSA. And that's where uh, the Americans do not want to compromise. The ruling will make this much more difficult because the court was clear in saying if there is undiscriminate access by U.S. authorities to data, European data in America, then meaning that there is no adequate uh, safeguards uh, to protect privacy. Great. Thank you, Ludwig. Thank you. Jason, now let's turn to you. The Nobel Prizes were awarded for the sciences this week in medicine and physiology, physics and chemistry. I'm interested in what's happening in the medicine and the chemistry, but the physics in particular intrigues me. So why don't you give us a little quick tour of the horizon of the other two and drill down into neutrinos. Um, as for the, the medicine prize, that was given to a trio of researchers who effectively found ways to, to use nature against itself to, to find new treatments for roundworm parasites and for malaria, um, both of which came from nature itself, not cooked up in a laboratory. A couple of researchers who were looking at some bacteria called streptomyces um, and one of the, the chemicals that those bacteria produce um, can be turned into a drug that became called ivermectin um, and that helped a lot with roundworm infection. That leads to river blindness and elephantiasis and a number of horrible conditions. And for the case of malaria, a Chinese researcher who effectively went through a big old book of, of ye olde Chinese medicines um, and found that one of them, which was helpful with animals infected with malaria, turned out, in fact, to be useful also for humans. And that's become a drug called artemisinin. That sounds really great. So that's medicine. That's medicine. And in chemistry, again, a trio of researchers. Um, and again, we're kind of hovering around 
human biology concerns, which is kind of an, uh, an ongoing, at least an internal joke for us about the chemistry prize in that it's never really about chemistry. It's either about physics or about medicine again. Uh, this not year, stamp collecting. Absolutely not stamp collecting. This year has been given for a trio of researchers who basically unveiled how it is that DNA repairs itself. Now, we all know that uh, DNA are the, the instructions that allow our, our cells to reproduce, and it's a big, long uh, string of four repeating letters and so on, but the world is not really so simple as that. All sorts of things can, can mess up the copying mechanism that lets one cell turn into two cells, turn into four, and so on, and turn into us. There's a bunch of ways that this can, can go wrong, mechanisms of damage, if you like. And the trio of researchers basically found the, the swarm of proteins that, that fix these things, that are basically the cell's proofreaders. They look at the DNA, find where the mistakes are, and fix them. Okay, so we've got uh, the medicine physiology, and we've got the medicine physiology dressed up as chemistry. So now physics. So let's get absolutely away from anything that is immediately useful to humans and talk about the stuff that really messes with your head. Yes. Exactly. Quite. <laughs> That's where I was headed with this. What is a neutrino and what was the prize awarded for? Let's start with what the name means. In Italian, it means little neutral ones. So they're little and they're neutral. That is, they have no electric charge. If you look at the, uh, the periodic table of particles, if you like, so chemists have you know the elements, physicists have the particles. These guys are really very light. There are three of them and they really, really don't like to interact with anything. This is it. They, they're going through you right now. They're going through whatever device you're listening to this podcast on. They're flying through. They're not touching anything. That makes them very, very hard to catch. They were first put forward in 1930. It took over a quarter of a century for the very first one to be caught in a laboratory. Now, people have gotten a little more clever about this and doing this in different ways and have found out that there are three types, flavors they're called. They're thought to be massless. The rest of the periodic table of, of particles suggests they really ought to be mass massless. The prize was actually awarded for a couple of big teams working in giant underground, awesome-looking laboratories that found out the, these things change their flavor mid-flight. That, in turn, means that they have mass if they have. Why does that mean that they have mass? That is an exceptionally hard question to, to answer in short order. But basically, if they can change from one moment to the next, then they experience time. If they experience time, then they're not going the speed of light. Because if something's going the speed of light, then hey, all time is the same. And if going slower than the speed of light, then, then mass. Is the, is the short and slightly hand-wavy answer. I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> okay, let's keep on going. So is there any application to the knowledge that these neutrinos change their flavor in flight? Right, the inevitable and painful question. Um, and in fact, it was asked um, during the, the announcement ceremony. Someone um, kind of kept pressing the, uh, the Nobel laureate they had on the phone to say, yeah, but, yeah, but what does it really mean? Why does it, why does it really matter? One of the things is uh, that it solves what's called the solar neutrino problem. The, the, the finding that they oscillate, that this sort of flavor flipping is called oscillation, solves that. Now, the good news, the, the practical news, the, the most practical news you're going to get out of me, Ken, um, is that that makes us feel a lot more confident in our understanding of fusion processes, which is useful for, well, for energy making or for bomb making or for just the general physicist's comfort with the understanding of the world. So that's helpful. Something a little bit more profound, if not immediately useful, is, okay, if they have mass and the standard model is wrong, then this, there's this long chain of, uh, of inferences that we can make that basically goes all the way back to the very beginning of the universe. And since these things have mass, there's some chance then that there were heavier versions of them way back when that decayed in various ways and they solve, check this out, why we're here at all. One of the things that the, the existing theory says is at the beginning of the universe, there was 
just an absolutely straight down the middle 50-50 mix of matter and antimatter. And you know, Ken, what happens when matter and antimatter meet, right? Don't even get me started. <laughs> right. Big flash Bang. of energy, right? Exactly. Which means basically in its absolute infancy, the, the universe should have gone big flash of light. That's it. Instead, it obviously stuck around for a while. So we're looking for any mechanism by which a little tiny bit of extra matter might have stuck around, even though lots of stuff will have annihilated and very bright and all very, you know, the, the, the crucible of the formation of the universe. Turns out these heavy neutrinos of ye olde times that could exist, given these things have mass, could give us the way that finally explains why matter exists in the universe at all. This is the long way around to tell you it matters a lot, Ken. That is really interesting. My head is completely spun. Most people around the world are ecstatic at the time of the Nobel Prizes being announced because it seems like an annual celebration of great invention and discovery. But Jason, I don't think you feel the same way. I have a couple of reservations. Look, I, I, I love this spectacle too and I, I sit down and I watch these announcements every year and it's, it's great to see how much people get into it and, and you know, can feel engaged with science. Behind the scenes, a lot of people in my business and scientists themselves have their reservations about the way the prizes are done. It can only be given to a maximum of three people. All the people have to be alive. And of course, there are a lot of modes of discovery that require more than three people. So it necessarily kind of glosses over some of the contributions of lots of people. These giant underground labs didn't have just like one guy, one person in it, right? There are hundreds, sometimes thousands in astronomy and high-energy physics, you can have literally thousands of people working on these things, and the prize can really only go to one person. That's one complaint. But also there's this feeling, I guess, that the, the public might take from this, which is uh, science hinges on eureka moments, right? One person sitting Rodin's thinker style until they have these moments, and then, you know, they're tapped by the Nobel Committee for their brilliance. And that kind of skips over a lot of the, the toil and the heartache and the dead ends and the, the lost nights and, and the what have you and turns it into these sort of crystallized little moments. So and the, and I'm, the, on, I'm on the fence. And the collaborative nature of science. Let me end with this question because we're running out of time. Do you think that the nature of science has changed, that as we've gotten more complicated models and the world has just seemed to have gotten a bit more complicated, that we need science that is inherently more collaborative today than it was 115 years ago when they created the Nobel Prizes? I think certainly so, um, and, and as, a, as a sort of natural evolution. On the one hand, we have the kind of international collaboration to build really big things, right? Space stations and particle accelerators and the like, and that necessarily requires lots of engineers and scientists and people to analyze the data and people people to build the networks on which the data is like that creates necessarily bigger groups of people. But also there's a, a, a very developed sense of interdisciplinarity. The belief that by mixing a bit of chemistry expertise with a bit of physics expertise and yes, we still need the IT people aforementioned to bring together lots of different perspectives on the kinds of problems we have. The straight chemistry problems to a large degree are solved. The straight physics problems to a large degree to a lesser degree, are solved, right? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of very complicated questions that necessarily kind of sit between the two. It's, it's just the matter of the, the sort of the prior divisions, the very divisions on which the, the prizes are now given. We've had, this, we've had this discussion about whether, you know, uh, the degree to which chemistry is ever actually chemistry. It, they all kind of just mush, mush together. Okay. Listen, Jason, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ludwig. Thank you very much. Sadly, that is all the time that we have for this week. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.